Hey y'all and welcome to the Source Code Podcast. I'm Chris Sanders and you're listening to our season finale, the last episode of the first season of the Source Code Podcast and it's been a really fun journey. I actually recorded all of these uh, the entire season uh, a couple months ago and then have been releasing them of course slowly every other week throughout the uh, the season here and the response has been really great. I'm constantly have people messaging me telling me how much they're enjoying listening to all of these origin stories of all these different information security practitioners who a lot of us really look up to or have modeled our careers after or whose work has impacted us in a positive way. So I'm really glad that I've had the chance to learn from people myself and interview all these great folks some of which are great friends and some I didn't really know that well but of course I do now and that uh, that's really cool and I've really enjoyed that now before we get to our next guest a couple things first of all we're going to take a break uh, for a couple months here with the Source Code Podcast. We have a break, uh, just like a TV series, uh, in between our seasons. Uh, and during that time, I will be scouring the globe looking for additional guests for the next season, getting those interviews queued up. I'll probably do most of those before the season actually begins so everything is ready to go and they can just be released. So if you have an interesting story or you know someone who has one that you'd like to hear more about, Get in touch with me and let me know, and uh, we'll see if we can get them scheduled as guests. We're still looking for a few guests to fill in some slots there. So you can get in touch with me uh, Chris at chrissanders.org or on Twitter at chrissanders88. Of course, we're also looking for sponsors. We want to really uh, thank uh, Squirrel and CloudShark for sponsoring our first season. Uh, this was kind of a surprise when it came out, so uh, they uh, they went into this thing not knowing what to expect, but I, hopefully they really enjoyed the, uh, uh, the response it got. We did get a lot of great numbers for them, and I think uh, if you're interested in sponsoring, I think you'll be pleased with the results you get from our really targeted uh, information security audience. So if you're interested in sponsoring, again, email me at chris at chrissanders.org. Uh, uh, and you can sponsor for uh, the entire season or just uh, a few episodes here and there, and we can uh, we can send you a sponsorship package on over. Finally, before we get to our guest here, I want to tell you about a training opportunity coming up. Uh, here in September, we have a couple conferences coming up, Besides Augusta and Security Onion Con. They are two of my absolute favorite conferences of the year for a few reasons, uh, not the least of which is the organizers are some of the best people I know. They're good friends of mine. They really spend a lot of time, put a lot of hard work and energy into making the conferences the absolute best they can be, uh, and it really shows. Uh, the conferences are a little more defensive, a little more blue team slanted, which, of course, I enjoy as a blue teamer, especially with Security Union Con. Besides Augusta, a fair bit more diversity, but a lot of blue team folks there. A lot of good talks presented. The venues are great. Of course, it's down here in the south, so come on down and get y'all some great food. There's a lot of great food to be had in Augusta. And of course, you come down and, and meet me and hang out with me uh, here as well. I'll be there the whole time. I'm speaking at both Besides Augusta and Security Union Con. And I'm also going to be down a couple days early doing some live training. Uh, that's right. That's This is one of the few opportunities to come to a public live training with me uh, for my investigation theory course. So you've probably heard me talk about investigation theory a few times. I've plugged it a few times on the podcast. Uh, so I'll be teaching a live version of that course for the public um, September 13th and 14th, which is the two days ahead of Security Onion Con and Besides Augusta. So if you're coming down for those, uh, it's real easy and convenient for you to come down for the training. It's in the hotel, uh, the actual conference hotel, so you don't have to go very far. And we're just really going to have a blast. It's going to be a training unlike anything you've uh, you've witnessed or gone through before. It's a little more, uh, not as technically hands-on, but we do a lot of activities designed to kind of get you out of your shell, 
to be able to talk through the analysis process and be overall more comfortable with the process of investigating things and not getting stuck and so on. So it's going to be a blast. You can check that out on my website at chrissanders.org slash training. Click on investigation theory and there's a link right there for the live uh, event right registration where you can look at the details. Uh, early bird pricing ends on that really, really soon. So if you want to take advantage of that, you're going to have to do so uh, ASAP. Now, our guest for today is my very good friend, Jason Smith. Uh, Jason was actually the first podcast interview I recorded. He agreed to be my guinea pig, so it's a little rougher than some of the other ones you may have heard. But Jason and I have been friends for quite a long time. We've actually worked together across many jobs. We, uh, we worked together for the Army Research Lab for a while, for Spay War, uh, and then more recently we worked together at FireEye. So uh, good friends. Uh, he was actually uh, uh, the best man at my wedding, and I was the best man at his wedding. We've known each other for quite some time. So uh, this one's going to sound maybe a little bit more just like two friends talking, uh, but maybe that's a good thing. You're going to hear a little bit about his story growing up in Kentucky, uh, a teacher and some family members who really made a strong impact on him. And one of the things that I think are really interesting, you're going to hear about his transition from a physics student, uh, he actually has a degree in physics, uh, to information security. It was a little bit of an unexpected transition, but we talk a little bit about the skills he learned as a physics student and mapping those over to information security and how they kind of aligned super well. So if you're into information security, but your background's on something else, I think you'll be interested to hear about Jason uh, and kind of his transition to InfoSec and his meteoric rise throughout the ranks and uh, all the important work he's doing now. Uh, as well as the mentorship he's doing now. We talk a little bit about mentorship and how he set up a little group there, uh, originally in Bowling Green, Kentucky, and now in Nashville, uh, where he's mentoring other people, helping get other people in the field, and the success he's had uh, doing that. So I really hope you enjoy this uh, conversation with my good friend Jason Smith. And uh, without further ado, we'll get on over to Jason. Now, Jason, um, I've known you for a long time. Uh, we've worked together in a lot of different places, and, and that's all been great. But now you're with Cisco. So before we get started, tell me a little bit about what you do for Cisco. Uh, well, I guess a little bit of everything. Uh, so I was kind of brought on to to kind of oversee some some customer deployments and make sure that they're successful with those deployments, uh, to do a lot of like hunting exercises, um, you know, to kind of help out. Uh, when the sock needs help, uh, you know, per customer or whatever. Um, but, you know, that was just kind of, <laughs> you know, things always seem to change uh, depending on the job and, you know, when you come into places that, so like now it's also like roadmap type of stuff, you know, trying to make sure that, uh, you know, I'm representing the whole detection aspect of things in the roadmap of, you know, developing the service that Cisco has. Uh, specifically, it's the... Uh, advanced threat analytics service that we offer. Uh, and so I try to make sure that as we move forward, uh, you know, we don't just, it's not just, you know, the, the deploy that we care about or the, you know, performance that things are still up and running, but that we actually are moving forward and being, uh, uh, you know, proactive about things as we move forward from a detection point of view and not just, you know, kind of resting on some of the stuff that we have uh, sitting around because you know, Cisco has a lot of stuff now, you know, the, you know, for between, you know, whatever acquisitions, um, and, you know, data types and stuff, you know, they basically, uh, they own a lot of technology, but it's easy to just kind of rest on that if you're not careful. So I make sure that we're, we're still, you know, future for, you know, future facing. Yeah. So it sounds like kind of blue team guy doing blue team stuff. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, as that works out, anybody that, 
that does blue team stuff for long enough, you also find that <laughs> you end up doing a lot of system administration work as well, you know, just as a, <laughs> a requirement of the job as well. So you're doing a lot of testing of, you know, different technologies usually requires that my time is sometimes heavily spent on setting up, you know, said technologies. So it feels yeah. like a lot of this advent <laughs> as well. Yeah, I don't think, uh, I think once you find good blue team people these days, it's, uh, there's not just an analyst or just a sysadmin. It's, it's a little bit of everything and you kind of have to impact everything. So that, uh, that makes sense. I think a lot of people probably relate to that job description. Um, definitely. So, well, that's, that's great. And I, I, we'll circle back around to that. But one of the things we're here to talk about is kind of not just, where you are, but how you got where you are. And so the place, the place I really want to start here is a place that we share in common. Uh, you're from Kentucky. I'm from Kentucky. Uh, we grew up probably about two and a half hours from each other. Uh, I grew up in a little town called Mayfield. You grew up in a, uh, a bigger town, uh, called, uh, Bowling Green, home of Western Kentucky university, uh, about an hour North of Nashville. So a lot of people probably have stereotypes about what Kentucky is, you know, a bunch of, uh, hillbillies running around without their shoes on. And, and maybe some of those are true, but, uh, you know, what was it? Tell me a little bit and tell the listeners a little bit what it was like for you growing up in Bowling Green. What was unique about that experience for you? Well, I guess, you know, first, you know, between me and you, uh, you know, I guess people probably don't realize how diverse Kentucky is in the first place that, you know, just, just how the ground lays, for instance. So, you know, your people are swamp people, right? Uh, you have uh, more flat stuff and, you know, more <laughs> probably more swampy stuff over there uh, compared to what we have here, which is, uh, uh, or back in Bowling Green, which is, you know, a bunch of caves. We're cave dwarves and you would be swamp people, I guess. And uh, So, <laughs> you know, a lot of times, you know, I think people just get the idea that we're all just rural uh, and there's there's really nothing but uh, you know Lexington, Louisville, and then everything else is no shoes. Um, but you know, in reality, you know, I grew up in uh, um, a place that had pretty decent schools. Um, you know, they weren't the best, um, but you know, we had a lot of uh, very smart people come out of everything and. You know, even, you know, take Bowling Green's University, for instance, um, Western Kentucky University. Uh, you know, I guess they had for a while, um, you know, one of the top ranked high schools. But as is usual, um, that came, you know, slightly after I did. So I did not get to uh, take advantage of that high school. Um, and so, you know, I grew up uh, not really around a lot of IT outside of, you know, gaming, which I think is the case actually for a lot of people that they don't really, they're not driven into any of this stuff. They more, more or less fall into it due to some other passion. Right. And and that's kind of how I started that, that my education was, was in physics. Um, we just kind of specialized on a lot of data parsing um, we did, I guess my specialty was finite element analysis, um, which is, well, a- tell me about that. I mean, tell <laughs> me how does, how does a guy from, you know, Kentucky, fairly rural Kentucky, I mean, how did you decide to go into physics? Cause I know when I hear physics and I'm, you know, I work in technology, but I'm not a math guy and I'm not a traditional computer science guy and math's intimidating to me. And, and maybe that's not the case with a lot of people, but what made you decide to go into physics? What drew you into that? You know, I'll probably push that all the way back to childhood, kind of, um, because, you know, growing up, 
you know, some people have, uh, you know, Legos or, um, I don't know, what, what did you have as far as, I'm sure you had something like Erector sets or whatever. Yeah, Rector sets, Lincoln Logs, things like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So we had a thing called Constructs, and Constructs had little motors and all kinds of stuff. And as a kid, I spent a lot of time when I wasn't playing video games and wasn't outside, I was building all this stuff. And I was like, oh, you know, I really like building everything. Um, and sure enough, uh, you know, into high school, I also you know, really got an interest in cars and things like that. So I liked how things just worked. Um, I liked the technical aspects of even how the simplest of things work. Um, and from there I thought, well, you know, I kind of want to do all this, but I don't know if I want to do electrical engineering or mechanical or anything like that. And so I picked physics because in my head it was, Oh, well, you'll learn a little bit of everything. And I was a little wrong because you end up learning a lot of everything. And it's in a way that's not super applicable uh, for most people. But, but in the end, you know, that's, that's kind of what got me here. I chalk it up to, you know, having been raised with the concepts that you need to know how things work, not just not just because you're interested, but because, you know, if, for instance, if I'm going to ride around in a car, it's probably safer if I know exactly how that car works. And, you know, even from, you know, if it's just safety equipment. It's good to know how the safety equipment works, things like that. No, and that's very pragmatic. I mean, do you think, I mean, it sounds like a lot of that came from your home and not so much from from school. I mean, would you say it's your parents who kind of instilled that in you and and that desire to to kind of understand fundamentally how things work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, I definitely give them a lot of credit for it all. You know, I don't know, because I have two older brothers and we are all extremely different. Uh, They did not approach things the way I did, even though we all had similar raisings. So, you know, I give my parents credit, but, you know, maybe maybe a lot of my schooling is still, you know, maybe I should give some credit to that. You know, I've had teachers who really, really focused on math. Um, they were, they were, I don't know, it was, it was a thing where they pushed things beyond what curriculum told them they should do. Um, and, I guess I was always really inspired by that. And that goes from even like elementary school, a lady named Miss, Miss Parrish, and I'll never forget her because like she really did instill this whole, you can be more than just what the school, you know, allows you to be. And she went forward and she took her own time to have after school classes to, you know, push us even farther. And sure enough, you know, that wasn't long to be because in the end, you know, a lot of curriculum gets in the way of, of progress because, you know, we were all eventually, you know, told that we couldn't move forward. And for, for three years straight, you know, everyone who was part of this whole advanced program was kind of held back. But I think even that played a big role in, in like who I am today that, you know, I try to make sure that if someone wants to learn, you know, I kind of do what Miss Parrish did and that. I try to make myself available as much as possible, even if it's something I don't know. You know, I'm going to try to work with someone to, you know, figure it out, and uh, you know, we'll both learn from those things. So, you know, maybe, you know, maybe school should get a lot of credit in both its, uh, you know, its successes and its shortcomings because, yeah, I think I learned a lot from both of those things. Yeah, no, that that makes sense, and I mean, it sounds like you. Uh, I mean, you were very fortunate in one sense, right? Because you ran into a teacher who 
probably recognized you were, uh, you know, you were striving for more. You had, you were intelligent and wanted to, to kind of foster that in you. I mean, would, would you say that's accurate? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was a, a whole group of kids and that's the thing. It's not just like one or two. It's, you know, there were a ton of them and you know, if, if there were more teachers like that, you wouldn't have had some, cause not all of these, these kids ended up so, so, uh, I don't want to say so successful. Well, I'm no, sure they're all successful. I think that's important because you, I mean, you have ended up wildly successful, especially for the area you come from. Cause I mean, I, you yeah, know, the yeah. area is, is fairly different from where I came from, but I think I know where I came from. Basically most of the people who, you know, not a lot of people didn't graduate from high school and the ones who did a smaller number of those would even go on to college. And from that, a much, much smaller group would stick with it and end up being in a job where you're making above the median income. And, and I know where I was at, the median income was very low. It was not much higher than poverty level. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, I would imagine that's, that's true to some degree for the place like that. I mean, is, is that accurate? Is that an accurate portrayal of where you went to school as well? Uh, yeah. So, you know, Bowling Green, um, and Warren County specifically, uh, various levels of income, uh, actually hugely varying. You know, you had, you had certain places that they had a lot, uh, a lot of opportunities, but it was because everyone there wanted to make sure that everyone was successful. Whereas you had other areas that were, uh, not as much rural, but you know, a lot of industrial places that they were tra- they were trying to make ends meet, and and honestly, I'm not sure if all the parents could could possibly really pay attention to what was going on. Whereas in the wealthier sides of town, you know, you they were completely focused on making sure that their kids had every opportunity. They're being held back, you know they they would really jump in there, and and you know, I think that kind of, I guess it goes back to my parents as well that. They were the types, even though we were rural, uh, they were the types that they did jump in. Well, <laughs> they would get on to me more than they would get on to, <laughs> to any kind of school. But uh, they would jump in and say, hey, you know, what is going on here? Um, and make sure that I was on track. Um, because, you know, I was a kid. You know, it wasn't like I was, I was any different or any – I mean, I may have been, you know – more mature, less mature than others, but you know, we're all just kids. And, you know, if given the chance, you know, a lot of kids will just do kind of their own thing. I'm sure you, you didn't always do, uh, you know, all of this, but you know, you probably played video games and all kinds of other things that maybe not have been as productive, but my parents tried to stay on me about, Hey, you should make sure this stuff is still moving forward at least. Well, and they probably, I mean, they probably wanted, I mean, it was like my parents, they would say the thing my, my parents would always say to me is they want better for me than they had for themselves. Absolutely. They, they didn't have, my parents didn't have a lot, right? I grew up in, in a uh, poverty like situation and, and I don't know about yours specifically, but I mean, it's probably the same thing. Your parents wanted better for you, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I guess, you know, when we started out, we, we talk about how the stereotypes not always true for Kentucky. But I think it might have came from a really, really clear place. Because I remember my dad talking, uh, talking about like when he first, uh, you know, when he was growing up, you know, they had slats in their floorboards where they could see snakes through these slats. Like they had snakes under their house and stuff. And like just to to even conceptualize a place like that, like that doesn't even make sense to me. But like that's how that those were living conditions for everyone. Like he wasn't any more poor than other people. It was like everyone was poor. Um, and, and no one really, you know, if, 
if there was a focus, it was on feeding each other. Um, they couldn't yeah. worry about anything else. What's well, basic human needs, right? Like you yeah. got to meet these basic needs. If people can't eat or can't drink, then education is, is not going to come, right? So you got to focus on those things first. And, and, and that makes sense. I mean, you know, with the Kentucky stereotypes, I think the thing that always gets me is, you know, if you want to stereotype and say that there's not a large concentration of white collar, intelligence, knowledge-based professional workers in, in large masses in Kentucky, then I would agree with that. But if you want to say that there's no potential for excellence or great expertise or world-changing views to come from Kentucky, I think that's where I disagree. And I think your story is a good example of that, right? Like you came from, and you mentioned your dad's floor had slats in it where snakes were crawling through, and that was the environment they lived in. And I think to look at that situation and look at where you are now as his son, I would imagine that's got to be a very proud thing for him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they probably, because they're pretty humble people, so they probably don't take nearly the credit that they probably should take. But, uh, you know, they were, you know, it's like what you said about needs, right? So <laughs> I guess him him growing up, they had a place to sleep that was dry. And to them, that was like something. And, and you know, when I grew up, you know, I obviously had much better. Uh, well, at least to me, I, I never thought that I was without, even though, probably was by comparison a lot of uh, a lot of other people but you know we always you know had pretty great food uh, never realizing that you know my parents were still eating chili every night um, whereas you know they were were cooking for us and and they were spending their money on trying to make sure that we had uh, you know everything we could to learn and that we we didn't feel without so we had decent food and <laughs> meanwhile they you know again chili all the time for them but uh, not for us kind of thing. Yeah. Well, that, and that makes sense. I mean, yeah, you, you think about it and, and as a kid, you don't realize what's going on in the world around you. You don't really realize, realize <laughs> how good or bad you have it. And I know a story from my, my childhood, which I remember a lot is, is we lived, you know, we were right at the poverty line. We weren't doing too well, but I never really realized it at the time. Like we always had food to eat and, and all that. And I remember my mom was very adamant about inviting my friends over all the time. Uh, and very, it was a few specific friends that would always be invited over and they'd come eat with us. And I didn't realize till much later in life that it wasn't that my mom just, you know, really care, you know, really like these, she wanted me to have these friends over all the time. It was that they were actually way worse off than we were. And if they hadn't been invited over to my house, they might not have gotten to eat. Right. So we were, <laughs> it was, it was this whole community yeah. thing. And it's amazing how you don't realize that type of thing. Um, that our you know parents had to go through in the struggle there. And once you do realize that, I think that's something that really hits you hard, right? It impacts you pretty strongly. Yeah. And I think that, uh, you know, that plays into a lot of mentor mentee stuff as well, that, you know, your parent is your mentor, even if you don't think they are, if you're not aware of it as a kid. Um, and, you know, even in this field, you know, I, it goes to say that, you know, a lot of times, at least in my experience, like helping out a lot of people, you know, you you completely selflessly say, I'm going to devote X amount of time. It's not going to benefit you at all. Um, it's not going to do anything, you know, for you. But the person you're helping, it hopefully will do everything for. But it's not always that they realize it at all. You know, it's like, I don't know, a lot of. <laughs> a lot of cycles of you know are spent where you know they they will realize it eventually like we realize this now um but yeah. you know they they eventually become something you know very cool 
and they look back and they think, man, you know, I got my start here. It's kind of like right now, you know, in which we'll talk about it in a minute, you know, exactly, you know, my first job, you know, how it started me. I want to pause just a moment and tell you about one of our sponsors. And I really love it when I can talk about sponsors uh, that are products I actually use. And that product in this case is CloudShark. The best way I can describe CloudShark is like Wireshark in your browser. It allows you to upload packet capture files, tag them, and perform basic analysis on them. I actually use CloudShark quite heavily when writing Practical Packet Analysis 3 and developing the online course of the same name. It allowed me to tag the packet captures in ways that made sense to me. Uh, so I could tag them whether they were troubleshooting scenarios or security scenarios, even tag them based upon the book chapter or the protocols contained within them. Save me a ton of time. It provides a lot of great analysis features too. It'll allow you to search through packet captures using a standard search language or filters that you're used to from other tools. Uh, it also allows you to scan for security threats. This is a pretty new feature and I had a chance to play with it recently and it's really neat for providing investigative context as you're going through a PCAP. Now, CloudShark is made by the folks at QA Cafe who are good friends of mine and you can learn more about it by going to cloudshark.org. If you decide to take a serious look at it, make sure you tell them that you heard about it from me on the Source Code Podcast. And now, back to Jason. Uh, tell me a little bit about your first job and if it's the job I'm thinking about, it's a pretty unique one. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> well, my first, my first serious job after you know actually being able to get to work um, was uh, I started working at uh, the park system at, at sixteen, um, and I was basically a garbage man. And so, you know, <laughs> this was like it wasn't a bad job because I had time to do my homework and stuff. But you know, we were working forty-five to sixty hours a week there, even though like. You know, here I was 16 years old and this was like a government job. But like, you know, they were like, oh, we don't really care so much about these child labor laws. We'll just continue to work you however much, as, as much as you're, you're willing to work. And I wanted to make money, so I was cool with it. But I always got to do my, my, my schoolwork on the job sometimes whenever things were quiet or, the, you know, the end of a night and I got everything done first, I would get to do my schoolwork. And, and so despite it being a nasty job, which by the way, I met my, my wife at this job. Um, <laughs> she was a, uh, a worker at the concession stand. Um, besides it being a nasty job, you know, I got exposed to a lot of stuff and, and I was able to do a lot of my work. And at the time, you know, I was, I was getting more into, a lot of the technical aspects of computing at the time because of video games, you know, you and a buddy are trying to do some sort of like a little, you know, land party between you two and or three people and you can't get something to work. So, you know, you go to try to figure out why your networking doesn't work. Of course, you're doing this as a kid who has no idea what networking even is. You're just trying to get the solution. But, but in the end, you end up learning a lot of stuff. And that was kind of the first job. And unfortunately, even after getting a physics degree, I went back to that job because I couldn't get it. <laughs> I couldn't get a, a real job doing any sort of engineering uh, in the area, at least, because you know, as we'll talk about later, even even engineering has the whole, you know, we don't really want to hire an entry level person. Uh, you know, if you're entry level, we still want you to have two or three years experience or something like that. And yeah. so that was well, my issue: is that I had a I lot keep, of. Uh, oh, go ahead. I, uh, I say I, I keep expecting you at some point to go give a like a talk at a conference and do the thing that everyone does and talk about here are ten lessons you can learn from being a garbage man if you want to apply them to information security. Like I feel like that's coming from you at some point. 
That'd be a pretty good talk. I haven't thought about that, but uh, there were a lot of lessons to be learned there. Most of them were depressing about humans. Um, <laughs> but because uh, you, well, you, well, you see every type of human coming in and out of a park, and most of them are pretty, pretty messy people. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess uh, they always said uh, that if you want to really learn about learn about people, dig into their garbage and learn everything <laughs> there is to know about them. So quite that's literally, probably, probably good and bad. I guess you took that to the literal sense. Um, so I guess uh, um, you know you did this job and you started in high school, but you worked in the parks. You worked throughout college, right? It, it partially paid your way through college. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So to pay through college, um, you know, I kind of. Yeah, I guess I looked a little too high in high school, and uh, one one class kind of messed up a full ride. And with with how scholarships were there, I did a thing called a Regent scholarship that if you didn't get it, you basically didn't get anything, and you had to like uh, you know try to scrap around for other scholarships as you as you could. And so I didn't actually get uh, get everything paid for, um, <laughs> and it was all again all because I actually you know went too high and, and had an AP class that I messed up on. Um, but, you know, working at the park, you know, I worked there from, I guess I started there my sophomore year of high school and I worked there until I graduated college. Um, worked in a few other places as well, but uh, at the same time. Um, but yeah, it was, it was working two jobs, mostly through college um, where I got, uh, I was able to pay for everything and pay for insurance and food right. and stuff. So let's talk about now, let's talk about the transition kind of, you've graduated, you have your physics degree. You mentioned you kind of went back to the park because you weren't able to find a job. So let's, I'd like to hear about like what happened there, you know, your, your process, what type of jobs you were looking for, uh, you know, why that wasn't necessarily, necessarily successful and how that led you to information security. So, yeah, that's the real start of all this, I guess, is that, you know, I was working at the park and at the API, Applied Physics Institute, which was a, uh, a company that was owned by Western Kentucky University. We did a lot of physics-y stuff, you know, actually, you know, um, doing the work, you know, a bunch of contracts and things like that. Um, and, you know, once I graduated, it was a thing of, you know, you can't work there unless you're, you know, full-time and we don't have a position. Uh, so I went back to the park full-time while I submitted all of these applications to all these engineering jobs, you know, had a lot of contract jobs that came up, but they never panned out because, you know, a company would lose the contract or whatever before me even starting. And so it was pretty depressing. Uh, out of nowhere, a uh, an old boss and professor uh, from the API was like, hey, I'm starting a new gig. You know, I want you to come work for me. You know, you parsed all this data for me at the last place. This stuff's not much different. Thing called PCAPs. And it's like, oh, okay, that sounds fun and not uh, messy and, and not garbagey. So I will go do that. And so I quit my park job for the first time in probably, oh man, I hate, I don't even want to think about how many years I was there really. But I quit that job. And I started at uh, Electronic Warfare Associates uh, doing government contract work for the Army, uh, in which I met you there. Uh, first met you, I was wearing a uh, dirty, greasy, v-neck, white t-shirt. 
Yeah, this and this is a great story, and this is a story worth telling. And I, I want to tell this one from my perspective because I, I'd been hired to work at this same place, and uh, I was going to be managing the analysts who were doing this network security monitoring type work. And the best part of this was, you know, I was hired on, and, and a couple of the analysts had already been hired. There were people from the local university, the local area. And they said, all right, well, we're going to go meet a couple of these guys. Let's go out. I think it was to, uh, was it O'Charlie's? It was. It was. Okay, yeah. They said, we're going to go out to O'Charlie's for lunch, and you're going to meet a couple of these guys. So I pull up uh, to O'Charlie's, and I'm standing with a couple of the guys I already knew. And then all of a sudden, I hear this really loud car. And sure enough, it's Jason, and he pulls up in what's essentially a dune buggy that I would later come to find out he built completely from scratch himself. Um, And he gets out. He's wearing basically gym shorts, this ratty grease covered white t-shirt. And that was my first introduction to Jason. And of course I thought, Oh God, this, this isn't going to work out. Um, and of course here we sit now many years later and it has worked out and, and worked out pretty darn successfully. I thought, um, now one of the, one of the interesting things, and this highlights an interesting point about that job was we were in Bowling Green, Kentucky, and we needed people who knew how to do network security monitoring. And, it may not be a surprise. There's not a lot of people in Bowling Green, Kentucky with those skills uh, automatically. So one of the, you know, our, our, the guy who was running that, that project, uh, Phil Womble, who is actually a, a professor at Western Kentucky university as well, physics professor. Um, one of his things was, is he looked at the job of network security monitor and he said, okay, this is really just data analysis. And so there's a lot of people who could be good at data analysis, although they might come from different walks of life. So we might have physicists, we might have, uh, mathematicians, we might have all these other folks, but I think we can make them successful at this job. Um, and that, you know, you were one of those folks and we had a lot of other folks in that, uh, in that group as well. Uh, can you speak a little bit to your perspective on, on how that worked both with you and with all the other folks you were uh, you were kind of brought on board with uh yeah so <laughs> we all i guess you have to have a perspective i guess how the physics major kind of is like especially at, at western um because we all kind of did different things right um so i started with like finite element analysis which is like analyzing physical things via you know computations um Another guy, uh, he started with uh, doing uh, Monte Carlo in-particle integration code, which is, uh, he was using that to monitor, like, radiation. Uh, one of our big focuses was, was radiation studies. Uh, the other guy, um, I don't even remember what he did, uh, but he was, a, he was a physics major as well. Uh, he also worked at the API. He did a lot of coding for us. Um, but we all came from completely different things as far as the actual field's concerned. Like, every, like at no point does anything relate to each other in these fields. Um, but it was all still the physics major, and it was the, the, the API that we came from doing all this uh, contract work. And so we all had the same mindset still. And the actual program itself really instills a mindset of figuring everything out, as you would expect, um, and just knowing how everything works. And so Bill Womble thought, well these guys should be good enough at this stuff. I bet they can learn. They've learned all this so far. Uh, if they can learn, you know, quantum mechanics, then they can sure, surely learn, uh, you know, network security monitoring. And he was about halfway right. <laughs> <laughs> halfway seems like a, a good yeah. way to say that. I mean, uh, I mean, and you tell me if you agree, my experience was for about half the people, they really got it and clung to it and now continue to have successful careers in the field. And the other half, maybe not so much. Yeah. And I think it, uh, I don't think it's a matter of, uh, you know, capacity to learn, but more so 
they had their minds set on a certain thing and they went towards it. Um, I was not any different. I still tried to quit uh, EWA, if you recall. I tried to go to various other engineering gigs. I still put applications in to engineering gigs because I said, that's what I want to do. You know, that will pay me more. That will be more fun. It will be the thing that I like to do. I mean, even at the parks, I was doing like SolidWorks and all this, uh, you know, 3D modeling and stuff like that just to practice and stuff on my downtime. Uh, And I thought in my head that, you know, that's the only thing that I really love to do because here I've built this car and I like all this mechanical stuff and who cares about these bits and bytes and whatnot. Um, And I was just blind to really that I was already doing what I wanted to do, really. It's just a different form of it, you know? And so what So what about it? What clicked? What was, was there a particular moment or particular project you worked on that really made you realize that this is what you were supposed to be doing rather than engineering? Yeah, yeah. It was when I was offered a marketable salary. <laughs> I mean, that's really what it comes down <laughs> to. Do it. I was kind of, uh, you know, in, in, in the first gig, you know, the salary was not anywhere near marketable, even for junior level work, but none of us knew better. And what were we going to do? Get a better job doing this? Like, we didn't think that this was a thing that we could really do. And, and to be fair, it wasn't really at the time. Like it, there weren't as many jobs doing this kind of stuff uh, that you could just go get. Um, and it was actually uh, the second gig that, that really made me think, I've been foolish. Um, you know, the, all this stuff I've learned so far and, you know, all these little scripts and detection things I've tried to make fun, uh, they've actually been really, really helpful and they led to a second gig, um, not to discount the help from my first mentor, um, <laughs> which was, was you that actually, was you know, <laughs> well, you know, you know, it's, it needs to go that, you know, the story starts where, um, you know, again, I met you first, um, and, you know, I didn't know anything about this stuff and you were the one who, who taught all of these analysts, um, you know, again, some stuck, some didn't, but again, it wasn't it wasn't you that caused them to stick or not. It wasn't the work. A lot of times I think it's that people have a, an idea of what they want to be doing and what it should look like and what it should pay and all of these things. And they start with that idea before they have experience doing anything. Um, and I'm sure there are things I could be doing now that may be as lucrative. They may be even more fun. I don't know what they are. So I should probably, you know, consider what I'm doing and what I have uh, and make the best of that before, you know, trying to quit something and go, go to something that may not even exist or may not be real. Yeah. Now, are there ever any times, and obviously you've had a great success. You've uh, co-written a book, you run an open source project, a couple of open source projects now, uh, and your name's pretty widely known in in a lot of areas, particularly things like Floatad and whatnot. So you've had a lot of success. Uh, You've been able to make a good living doing this, but were there ever any times once you kind of got into this where you maybe doubted, you know, doubted your decision, doubted to pursue InfoSec and maybe considered going back to engineering or, or just regretted the decision? Well, a lot of the first job that also made me not want to move forward with InfoSec, I think had a lot to do with the business and less to do with the work. Um, You know, everything that you do in a job is more surrounding the company you're working for, the people you work with, um, and kind of, you know, if you're going to be working next year, it doesn't usually depend on you or your work. It normally depends on the uh, the people you're working for. 
Uh, and for us, it was a contract gig. And, and there's always all this drama about everything to do with, you know, are we going to still be working? You know, what hours are we going to work? You know, or, you know, hey, Jason, you know, so-and-so couldn't meet their shift. So after your 12-hour shift, I need you to work another 12. And then your 12 comes again. So like a 36-hour day, basically. You know, things like that were always fairly depressing because you thought, I could go get an eight-hour eight, eight hour gig doing what I love to do in a place that's pretty decent. Why am I doing this? And, like, it wasn't to do with the work at all. It was just, like, the organization of how we were forced to operate, um, which was, again, the salaries are, the salaries are low because they, they low-bidded and they had to do that to even get accepted um, and to get enough people in to actually do the job to meet the, the requirements, right? So you had to have, you know, X amount of people on a shift no matter what. And so to do that, you paid low. And I get that that's the point. And, and I just wasn't, it wasn't obvious to me at the time that none of this was really to do with anything local. It was all just, you know, how contracts work. And, uh, and I was like, oh, I should get out of this stuff. But in the end, you know, I went to another contract gig and it was a completely different experience. Um, I think well, tell it, me about that a little bit. I mean, tell okay. me we, uh, you know, you worked at, at EWA for a while. Uh, I worked there with you. And then at some point, uh, the opportunity to go to, uh, to Charleston came up, right. And, and continue government contracting. So tell me, um, you know, a little bit about the decision. Obviously that was a tough decision because you're moving away from your childhood home. Um, you're also at that point, I, I think moving away, um, from your longtime girlfriend, who's now your wife. Um, so big, huge decision. Um, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, I guess I guess you had gotten the gig there, um, hadn't moved yet, and I, if I recall correctly, you were like, "Hey, this guy worked pretty well for me already, and he is probably open to moving, uh, especially if you know things, you know, are are more marketable." Because I think you know, I think I was pretty open to you about what I didn't like about the first gig, and I think you saw that the second gig was definitely alleviating almost all of that. And I don't think I pushed back very much on moving. Like the the whole consideration of moving away from family and you know home and you know, having never really traveled much at all. Obviously, that was pretty daunting. But I think uh, I think I have the mentality that you know you should always move forward um, as much as you can. And and if you want to keep things, you know, work to keep them, and that's extra hard work. But like you know, always move forward. You know, personally, because then you bring people up with you as well. Um, and I think, you know, from in one perspective, you know, you did that, you know, you move forward and, and as, a, as, as you move forward, I benefited as well. And more people benefited that you probably don't even know of, uh, specifically spay, you know, spay war themselves when we moved to work there, you know, I think that they benefited a lot from, uh, from our employment. Um, I like to think that our contract company benefited. Um, but you know, I moved forward there just because, you know, it was moving forward into something that felt more like how this industry should be, not, you know, some sort of, you know, extremely low paying, uh, you know, yet technically, you know, you know, very requiring place. Right. Um, instead, it was, hey, you're being paid for the work that you're basically doing and the quality that you're doing. Yeah. Um, so would you say that at that point, that was really maybe the first time in InfoSec where you felt like you were being paid what the work was actually worth? I felt like it was the first time that the InfoSec 
as an industry was even kind of legitimized in my head that this is actually a, a you know a thing where people are paying people with their worth yeah that at first i was afraid that this whole industry is so amateur uh, at the time that they're not paying anyone what they're actually worth and so this was a this opened my eyes and and it's usually the story i start with 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 people i'm like hey you know just because your foot in the door may be low paying your foot in the door is the hardest part um expect that as you get better people will pay you what you're worth in most places Wow. Yeah, no, that's, that's a, that's an interesting perspective. Um, I think a lot of people will get value from hearing that sentiment too. So I want to quickly tell you about another one of our sponsors, uh, which is Squirrel and Squirrel is a tailor-made threat hunting platform designed to aid security analysts in finding threats that other tools miss and enable organizations to investigate threats faster with fewer resources. They make this possible by fusing data sources into a graph exploration environment that allows analysts to easily pivot through diverse data sets using linked data analysis. And I can tell you personally, I'm a big fan of this approach. I've advocated graph-based thinking for quite a while. As opposed to detecting single anomalous events or users, Squirrel's investigation supporting security analytics are focused on detecting the tactics, techniques, and procedures of cyber adversaries. Now, one more cool thing I love about Squirrel is that they've pioneered some great thought leadership and a lot of content on threat hunting in the community. They produce some really great blog posts I like reading, and they're getting ready to release a new Threat Hunting Academy lecture series. I'm actually going to be recording one of these lectures for them soon, so make sure you check that out. You can learn more about Threat Hunting and the Squirrel product at squirrel.com. That's S-Q-R-R-L.com. Make sure you tell them that you learned about their product from me on the Source Code Podcast. And now, back to Jason. So you worked in a, you know, you worked at EWA for a while, and then you worked at, at Spaywar for a while. So you have, uh, you eventually moved on, but you had several years where you worked in government contracting. And uh, there's certainly for a lot of people getting into the field now, there's a lot of opportunity with government contracting. Um, I know it has its pros and its cons, but from your perspective, I mean, how would you, what would you say holistically about your time working as a government contractor? And would you recommend someone new to our field pursue something like that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I never really felt like I was working for the contractor. I always felt like I was working for the company they were contracting for. Uh, you know, for instance, I use the term spay war instead of Honeywell right off the bat because my mentality is that as a contractor, you're working for you know the the customer, quote unquote, which is you know the people paying the, you know the bills. And and I never really felt like I was working for the contract company. And a lot of people when they they come into this kind of work. You know, their first interaction is the headhunter who's going to hold their contract, and they think that they're going to be working for them in a way, but really it never, ever, ever feels that way. So, you know, the concept of contracting pushes people away sometimes, but every every time I've contracted for anybody, I've always worked until I wanted to leave. The opportunity to stay was still there. But usually it was only until I wanted to move forward. So it was never, there's never a feeling of, you know, that uh, this is going to be done because my contractor is doing this, that, and the other. It was always just regular work. I mean, it was never, I would always recommend it. That makes sense, but I mean, I mean, I'll, I'll look at the the EWA situation. I mean, we left there, and then you know, it was maybe a year, year and a half later where that job ceased to exist, right? Because they they lost yeah, their contract, true. and and that went elsewhere. I mean, was that at any time 
was that on your mind that there was a chance that that contract may be lost and I may have to look for another job? I know that's that's something a lot of people in contracting think about, or is that something you kind of just push to the back and said, I'll deal with that if that comes up? Uh, at EWA, I thought that we would constantly lose our contract. It, again, it was my first contract job, so I didn't really understand contracting in general, that even if it's going terribly, it takes a long time for a contract to cease in most cases. Um, uh, you know, it's it's a timeline type of thing. And if you have decent, uh, if you have decent, uh, managers, you know, that are handling the contract, you know, hopefully you have an idea of you know, when things are going to terminate. Um, but for the most part, every other job, I never really felt that way, uh, that, that those things, well, I guess it comes down to, do you feel like your company's actually providing, uh, any sort of, you know, support that you're being paid to do? If you feel like that you aren't succeeding as a company doing your job, and that may be because that you're not enabled or whatever, it doesn't matter. If you're not doing what you are expected to do as a company, then you can expect that eventually you will probably not be working there anymore. The goal is to get out before that happens, I would say. Right. No, that makes uh that makes sense. So you uh you did that for a while. You worked at Spay War, then I know you went to uh you went to back to, you know, the prodigal son returns, you come back to Kentucky <laughs> yeah. and you're working in state government for a while. And that was a unique job for a lot of reasons. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I love that. Uh, they were awesome people to work with. Um, it was, it was kind of interesting though, because it didn't seem like there was a lot of operational knowledge there. When I got there, they had a fair amount of turnover from people who were very savvy. Um, and so I came in and Things were kind of broken when I got there. There, there really wasn't anyone there to monitor anything. Uh, they had some defunct vendor services that, oddly enough, stayed defunct even long after I was there and gone. Um, but uh, for the most part, it was like you know who, you know, so who was doing anything here and you know kind of crickets. Um, so I had a really good chance to you know kind of be thrown out there on my own and forced to learn a lot of things that. Even though Spay War was a good opportunity to learn, I learned a lot of cool stuff. We always had like a support and infrastructure support and all kinds of stuff there. Here, I was everything, um, and so it was it was a challenge, but it was the most fun I've ever had in a job. Um, being thrown out there on your own, to where you still have to meet all these standards, and you personally want to make sure that you know your operations is you know on point, that everything is monitored. It was it was a fun gig, and I had a lot of support from everyone around me there because they knew that if it wasn't something they knew already, that they could learn it with me, or that uh, you know I could kind of you know, teach them or whatever. Um, and they were all they were all just great people. You know, I miss miss all of those people. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like that was really kind of a trial by fire type thing. You didn't have a team of analysts you were working with at that point anymore, so you kind of just had to to dive in and do a lot of uh, you know fire and live live rounds to experiment a little bit. I mean, that's that's an exciting opportunity for learning, I would imagine, because because there's no better way to learn than doing right. So that that makes sense. Is that would you agree with that? Yeah, and I was enabled a lot there by the uh, the management that they understood that. You know, I was also still figuring out some things, but that I had a pretty good idea of everything. I just needed to actually implement it. And, you know, they weren't super used to the idea of a vendor bringing a black box in, plugging it up and it working. So they were okay that it took me, you know, a few weeks to set things up. 
on uh, some fairly old hardware. I mean, this was hardware that was literally sourced from uh, from the garbage um, that they had because no one cared about security there at first. Um, and it was like, we need you to provide a use case that will win everyone over. We pick this stuff up at that garbage. Can you turn it on and make it work? It's like, well, yeah, I guess. And and ended up winning everybody over actually with some some flow data because that was the only thing I could get to run on these boxes. Yeah. So so what was next? So you, you worked for the state for a while and, and really transformed a lot of the way they do information security and information security monitoring, which is a great service. So uh, what was after that for you? Uh, well, <laughs> that's a... That's a good question because uh, during during the state work, uh, you know, we worked together on applied network security monitoring. Uh, met a few people through that. Uh, worked pretty pretty closely with them. Uh, worked closely with uh, David Bianco. Um, he had recently taken uh, taken a gig at Mandiant, uh, doing a. Uh, I don't know if they would want me to say what it's even called at the time, but now it's Tap um, FireEyes Tap product. Um, threat analytics platform TM, uh, but uh, <laughs> he brought me over there because you know we'd worked together. And he's like, "Hey, this guy's pretty good. Um, let's try to make him an offer you can't refuse." And all that meant is basically remote, and I was fine with it because this is my first remote gig. Um, and that uh, that let, let you go back to Bowling Green, right? Yeah, that was the goal. That uh, Tara and I both we were living up there, and we we both wanted to get back to family. Um, I mean, I was. I was mostly indifferent because having moved around everywhere, I was, I was kind of indifferent on where I go, but she was really wanting to get back. And so uh, I took a remote gig. Um, and soon after she did as well, we moved back to, to Bowling Green where I was right. working for Mandy and, and then FireEye. Okay. So you were, you were Mandy and of course they were acquired by FireEye. And then of course that eventually you, uh, you ended up at Cisco. So that's kind of been the, the more recent part of your career. And, and I, I don't, I'm not going to ask you to incriminate yourself too much, but what's it been like? I mean, those are both vendors in the IT security space. What's it like working for a vendor in general? And would you recommend that to someone, you know, at varying stages of their career? Um, it's not as personal. Well, first I would always, I would definitely recommend, working for a a vendor provided that you like the people you're going to be working with because you know everyone always asks you know about you know back in the day about FireEye and stuff like that assuming I just worked with FireEye appliances and like it's like everything in FireEye is different like every person you ask what they're doing they're going to have a different feeling depending on who they're working with and who their management is I had great management at FireEye so I had a good experience and stayed there three years Uh, whereas other people they might have had some pretty serious turnover if they had bad management. Um, and it all came down to that. And I'd say every job comes down to that, um, that, that it doesn't matter if it's vendor or not. Um, you know, how much you like the job day to day is going to depend on how easy your management makes it for you to stay there. Um, and that's regardless of what you're doing. Yeah. You know, it's a funny thing. You know, I think in in IT security, we really want to make these vendors into these big monoliths. And we think of them as this, this solitary thing, almost like a vendor is a person and like everything anyone does related to that vendor is all tied to this one person. When in fact, it's all very diverse. I mean, we worked on a team uh, at FireEye that was completely separate from the appliances uh, on our, you know, kind of doing our own thing. Uh, But of course, if one thing goes good with FireEye or one thing goes bad with FireEye, you kind of get roped into that. And I imagine, I know that's always been frustrating for me because it seems you get more roped in with the bad with the good than the good. And that's with any vendor, not just FireEye. I mean, is that something you can relate to? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, uh, 
you know, a lot of assumptions are made from the outside. And we did the same thing, I'm sure, um, for working with, with FireEye or working with our first vendors um, that, you know, when you hear bad news, you're like, ah, oh, FireEye guys, blah, blah, blah. And, and when it, that's not how it goes, you know what I mean? Um, and so, you know, if I had to recommend someone on if they should or shouldn't work for a vendor, a lot of it, I think, comes down to, at least from my perspective, we worked with a lot of customers. Um, it would be like, would you like to be a general practitioner that sees a lot of people and isn't super personal with any of them? Or do you insist on being a, uh, you know, a therapist who knows the in and out of maybe just a few people a week, right? Um, that my feelings at the state were one of we were really personal. I felt like every packet there was something that that I needed to make sure I knew what was going on, especially if it went awry. Whereas at FireEye, I always had a bigger picture view of things. And if it's something people like, this whole big picture view, um, and in big, you know, a lot of ways, big data kind of stuff, because in the end, you're having to do everything with all the data for all these customers. If that's something people like, vendors are great things. But if they want to be personal and only have a scope that is more narrow onto one thing, then then vendors may not be the best thing. A lot of people I know yeah. get burned out in a vendor space because they're like, I really miss how things used to be if they worked previously in, in a smaller scope. Yeah, now that that makes sense. And you know, one of the things I've noticed is, is the folks who seem to be the most critical of vendors are almost exclusively folks who have never worked for one. I mean, that's yeah. that's kind of the, the truth of the matter because when you when you work for one, you kind of see uh, how these monoliths actually break up into their subcomponents and and really with any vendor, even the ones who just do boneheaded marketing things and there's plenty of those out there. Uh, you know, vendor is made up of a lot of skilled people who generally care about what they're doing and I think that's lost on a lot of people, but uh, I could talk about that for a while. So so, you know, that kind of brings us current to where you are now. And, you know, you've been highly successful. And one of the things I've noticed about you, just knowing you personally, is you care a lot about passing that knowledge on. And you've kind of created your own little community uh, of, of interest there in Bowling Green, where you're, you're constantly mentoring people and trying to get other people involved in the industry. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, and that's kind of uh, drug itself down to Nashville as well, where I am now. Um so in Bowling Green, uh, you know, we started a little information security meetup to first kind of gauge some interest on who all is actually doing this stuff here and who is who all is interested. And it turns out the people doing it don't like to show up to meetups uh, for whatever reason. And the people who are really interested, they are mostly at the university, as you can probably expect. Um, the university itself uh, doesn't push information security much. Um, they push away from it more than they push to it. Um, I'd just say that from... You know, I tried to start a uh, an, an organized thing there, and it was kind of turned into this money-making venture before it even started. Uh, so that was like completely against the principle of it. Um, because, you know, the whole goal that, that I try to do is that, you know, you shouldn't be told you need to go to, you know, a $5,000 class to get started in information security. You know, there are so many ways to to do it from a a hands-on point of view uh, for free that, um, you know, why not do that? And so that's kind of what I was pushing the whole, it was more operational work there that, 
you know, hey, let's all get started. Let me show you some demos. Uh, let me show you why they're like, why this is cool. Uh, you know, what is there to like if you've never seen this stuff, you know, and even from the perspective of monitoring your own traffic, you know, the whole NSA thing really spurred up actually a lot of interest in these people because they're like, oh, yeah, this is like NSA stuff and you know, blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, sure, let's let's keep moving forward. And, and whatever you can do to alone, get them hooked, right? Yeah, I mean, it was like they had the media hype already and it got them hyped up on the topic of of uh, surveillance. And so blue team stuff suddenly was, was uh, appealing to these people, um, obviously with the caveats of, you know, you may not like what you see if you're monitoring people you know. <laughs> <laughs> so so you actually started getting people together on a regular basis. You even had like a crazy name for it, like on Saturday nights y'all would get together. What, what, what was that? Uh, I think it was, it was Super Sunday Cyber Chicken. Yeah, we would fry chicken um, and uh, everyone would eat all this fried chicken and we would I guess study. I guess that's another one of those uh, Kentucky stereotypes that's true then. Yeah, I think it is. <laughs> So, I think so. so, so you've had uh, you've had some really good success with that meeting people and mentoring them. I mean, you've had a few folks who were you know not even in this field who you know would come and hang out and learn stuff, and they got really interested to it and would go on uh, and change fields. Right, they'd end up in cybersecurity jobs. <laughs> yeah, and that uh, you know largely you know I kind of piggybacked on the whole you know why can't physics people do this, especially when they're super depressed about only being told that they have to go get a doctorate in physics, basically, right? That they didn't, they didn't really ever want this. They wanted to do engineering, um, but they didn't know what engineering. My whole story, you know, basically. And so I'm like, hey, well, just give this a try. You know, you're not doing anything otherwise. Why don't you come over? Uh, you know, I'll give you access to this lab. We'll walk through some examples and some demos. And sure enough, uh, you know, some of these people are now in uh, in other gigs. You know, my wife, for example, she's she's a good example that, you know, our first gig, you and I. Uh, we started, and and oddly enough, she started kind of before I did in in this other um, this other company across the hallway, uh, you know, categorizing PCAPs and malicious traffic and stuff. And and but she got out of it, right? And and she was gone. And eventually, I was like, hey, why don't you try this again? And sure enough, now she she's had, she's been a pen tester, and and now she's uh, uh, she works for a healthcare company here in Nashville. Um, another guy, you know, he, he got his master's in, uh, Homeland Security Sciences, still didn't really know where he was going with it. So it's like, Hey, give it a try. And sure enough, now he is the guy, you know, at a different healthcare company here. And, uh, I don't know. I feel like even though I don't have success as much as I would like to with people getting into this, it's actually a fair, fairly high percentage to what you would expect would stick around. Um, because you don't expect all these people would would ditch things uh, for this. And, and I think it comes down to what are they doing right now? What is their situation right now? And uh, because a lot of the failures I've had have been people trying to move from one industry to another. Um, and they think, well, I already have this, this cushion, the salary cushion. I can't possibly go backwards on salary for this entry-level security job when they're like three or four years into their own industry. And right. in the reality, like, no matter how much you tell them, it's hard to get them over that that hump that, yeah, this is going to be a little lower for now, but give it even a year. And if you're successful at all, people are going to notice this. And it's really easy. In my head, it's really easy to be very successful in security if you just take an interest in doing the actual work. Like, don't ride on everyone else's coattails. Just learn to like the work, and people will actually 
they'll really notice it and you'll be the guy, you know, you know, whoever yeah. you are. Well, and it sounds like, it sounds like you take a lot of pride in what you're doing and kind of building this community and helping people kind of uh, achieve kind of personal and financial goals via information security, which is a great thing. And it almost sounds kind of like you're paying it forward, right? Cause mm-hmm. you know, we talked, you talked earlier and you had a lot of positive influence from your parents, from teachers, from others you've met in the field. And now you're kind of flipping the script a little bit and you're trying to be that positive influence for people. And I, I just think that's an incredibly admirable thing. And, and we need more people doing that. I mean, how, you know, to, and to that end, how do you do that? How do you get more people taking the time to mentor others? And how do you set up these little groups? I mean, what would you recommend to someone who, you know, feels compelled to, to help others in the same way you have? Um, so not everything is selfless. Um, and I think everything you do in life has to have some sort of selfish motivation. I think that's, that's humans, right? Um, that, you know, we are, you know, we're programmed to, to persist on our own. Um, and to do that, you know, we, we need food, we need shelter. And after you have all those things, you want happiness and a lot of happiness comes in community. Um, and a large motivation, you know, beyond just helping people and the satisfaction of, of helping people and seeing people grow a large uh, motivation is building community. You know, I work remotely uh, Tara for a while worked remotely. Um, I always loved the jobs in which I had people I worked with directly. Um, and so a lot of this is building a community of people that you can work with directly, even if you don't actually work with them in the same place. Um, and you know, it's easy to be drawn away from friends. I mean, how many friends from high school or college, you know, do you still regularly hang out with? It's probably less than, three or something, right? Yeah, not, not very many. And so, but how many people in information security do you call friends that you also hang out with moderately regularly via, you know, traveling to conferences or whatever? Yeah, uh, quite, quite a bit. I mean, that's, uh, that's most of my friend group and probably true for a lot of people in InfoSec. Yep. And so I try to kind of mix the two, especially the, the people around me so that, uh, you know, even now after having moved to Nashville, you know, it's a brand new place, brand new people. But already, I already have a you know a friend group that is larger here. You know, we we have monthly meetings, uh, a thing called uh, NashSec. Um, we are all very very uh, dedicated to you know local conferences. We all talk about each other's work. We talk about each other's private lives. You know, we we go climbing together. We cook together. We do all this stuff together. And if anything, I would say that's kind of the definition of having a, you know, solid friend community. And it's all from, you know, a joint purpose, uh, that purpose kind of, you know, rooting in InfoSec. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. So, I mean, in terms of security education in general, I mean, you kind of hit on this earlier, colleges aren't really doing the best job here. We're kind of struggling because really a lot of people will tell you your only options are to go to college, which we know doesn't work too well for cybersecurity in most places, or to go, you know, spend five or $6,000 on a class, which is honestly way more too much for people to afford when they're new in this field. So what do you think the answer is? Do you think the answer is more kind of individual localized mentorship like this, or do you think it's something else or a combination of that? Um, I, I, I hesitate to say mentorship is the end-all uh, solution because it is few and far between on who is willing to do it. Uh, you know, case in point being of the people I've mentored, how many of those are interested in mentoring them? You know, mentoring as well, 
And I would say probably the percentage is is, is low um, because they either don't have time, they're dedicating you know their resources to something else, they don't know the people they want to mentor, maybe they perceive me as getting in people's business and, and trying to get them to do something they didn't originally want to do. Maybe they think that it's wrong to do that kind of stuff. I don't know, but but I don't think it's easier to pass on the information security knowledge than the concept and of, of mentoring other people and, and getting people to want to do that. Um, so I like to think that we still need structured classes and, um, you know, I know you're probably not wanting to do, you know, any sort of, uh, uh, promotion of, you know, anything that you're doing, but like, again, you know, you're, you're starting up some classes of your own and, and that kind of stuff, um, that's obtainable is is key, and I think I think it being obtainable is is kind of the key word there. That yeah, so so accessible to people who just can't afford these astronomical prices or or you know a, a four year college degree maybe. Yeah, especially if they consider those other things waste of time, um, because you know a lot of people would regard uh, a four year college degree now um, as not being applicable to the real world. Um, that especially in information security that the curriculum that does exist in a lot of places, not every place, obviously, I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to assume to know that every place is behind, but it takes time to get curriculum approved. Uh, sometimes it takes two years to get curriculum approved. Um, if I give you information that is two years old, let's say I interviewed with you as some job that you're offering and I'm only quoting things that are two years old, you're probably going to wonder why I'm not a little more up on you know, up on things. And why am I not more modern? Because right, two absolutely. years is a long time in information security. So a program that only teaches you knowledge two years old is a program that's not incredibly applicable. Yeah, absolutely. No, that makes sense. So, well, I know you're, you're busy and we'll get you out of here, here in just a minute. Just, uh, one of the questions I like to end with here, I mean, if you're if you're talking to someone who's new in this field or they're interested in it, maybe they're a college student looking to to move into information security or maybe it's someone looking to change professions into information security, what advice do you give them? How do they how do they make that step? How do they make that transition? How do they get that first job? Um, they probably need to start a GitHub account and they probably need to learn some sort of scripting or coding and learn to like doing that. Um because I think the key in doing well in this field is liking what you're doing because then you're going to be more productive and productivity is something that is definitely noticed by any manager, by any person hiring. Uh, you know, if you can, if you can basically get in an interview and then just walk away with the interview on your own, basically like in, in theory, like now at least, you know, when I interview for a job, it never feels like an interview. It feels more like a conversation where I talk about the things I love. Who doesn't like to do that anyways, right? So yeah. if a person getting into this stuff can learn to like what they're doing, via, especially via like coding or something like that, some sort of, of scripting or, or anything that does you know, actionable stuff that can make other people's jobs easier, that can uh, you know, give you, you know, I guess, a picture on like, you know, how do these things work? Because, you know, it goes back to, you know, I talk about constructs. You know, I liked constructs because I could build things and figure out how they worked and stuff like that. And that got me everywhere. And even in starting this kind of stuff, you know, figuring out how they work, you know, how does how do things network together? You know, that's a basic thing that uh, should be figured out and in a way that you'll like doing it, though. 
Um, and that means hands-on. You know, for me, you know, people learn differently. But for me, you know, I can't just read a book and enjoy something that's technical. I need to try it out. I need to see you know, how it's working. I need to see errors happen as I try to set it up. I need to fail at setting it up. And then I need to feel the, you know, the joy of success at getting it working. I mean, like, finally, I see these logs or finally, you know, this this thing didn't give me an error code or whatever. Um, learning to love what you're doing right. and making it applicable to security will guarantee you success in security, I would say. That's awesome. No, I think that's that's incredibly valuable advice to really, quite honestly, anyone in, in this job, even if you're just kind of uh, new to it or maybe you've been in it a while and your, your desire to continue is kind of waning. That's uh, that's useful information. So thank you for that. Well, uh, that's great. Uh, Jason, anything you're working on right now, any open source projects, anything you're you're uh, blogging about, anything like that you want to you want to plug while we got a chance here? Uh, you know, work's kept me pretty busy lately. That because uh, I, I started Cisco not long ago, and so I'm still, you know, the whole uh, bake-in period. Uh, been a lot of work, so you know, things have kind of fallen by the wayside a little bit. But I got a few different projects I would like to to move forward. Um, you know, specifically, you know, I'm still you know moving forward with like uh, Flowbat development as much as I can. Um, you know, I'm upgrading things like Flowplotter. Uh, trying to get bro plotter out there because uh, you know, there's not a lot of easy ways to plot bro data that's you know very seamless uh, without a lot of extra work. Um, so trying to get those out there that uh, you know small little frameworks that should make things easier to make you know dashboards that are usable um, you know without something like Splunk or whatever. Um, but outside of that, um, can't really commit to other things to be done. I mean, that's what it comes down to, right? How many people yeah. have projects out there that are, are stale and never finished? And I don't want to quote anything about those because they may never get done. Yeah. Well, you mentioned earlier that the thing you recommend for people is to start a GitHub account and start a GitHub account so you can have a graveyard of a bunch of projects you've uh, you've started to uh, work on but have failed to. But that's uh, that's kind of the name of the game. If one out of 10 works out, you're doing pretty good. I'd yeah, say. yeah. Yeah. That's huge. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, great. Well, Jason, thanks again for uh, for making time for this. I, I admire the heck out of what you're doing, and I really appreciate your willingness to come on and talk about your mentorship and, and kind of paying it forward from uh, from the background you came from. So, Jason, thanks again. And uh, you have a good one. Yeah, absolutely. Have a good one. That's going to do it for this last episode of our first season. Listen, if you like what Jason had to say, make sure and thank him for donating his time and coming on the podcast. You can find him on Twitter at Automate. That's A-U-T-O-M-A-Y-T. Again, this is the last time you're going to hear from me for a couple months as we're recording the next season of the Source Code Podcast. I really sincerely appreciate all of you who have subscribed to the podcast, who have listened to a few of them here or there, and who have also provided your feedback. It means the world to me. This has been a project I've been wanting to do for a while and was finally able to do it recently, and it's just been a really enriching thing for me. And the feedback I've gotten from so many other people is that it's been really enriching and helpful to their careers as well. So that means the world to me that people get value out of this sort of thing. Um, and of course, I enjoy it myself. So, so what could be better? So again, thank you all for listening and we'll see you in a couple months. And as always, remember, it's a beautiful day to catch bad guys. Take care.